Well, good morning. It's fantastic to be with you. And a special welcome to our friends in Ellen and also in Peterhead who are joining us today as well. If I could just, before we open the scriptures together, if I could just quickly say uh, this is a moment for our whole church family to come together and pray because there are a number of really significant and important things happening around our church. So one of them is Peterhead. Next Sunday, the 6th of Feb, is the first Sunday where we throw open the doors to Peterhead to anyone from the general public who wants to come and be part of our church or come and visit. And so we'd love you to pray for that. We've also recently been handed the keys to uh, a disused former community centre in Lawrence Kirk, which will become the community hub and the place of worship for the Merns site. Please be praying for those guys. We're just about to appoint builders and so on there. At the same time as all of that, um, it turns out that Jesus is still building his church, even in the midst of a pandemic. Um, uh, we're, we're just about to commission two brand new church plants. So there's a, a, a family, the Stoffbergs, have recently moved to Dundee. And this past Tuesday, they had their first ever public kind of meet and greet, come and, come and uh, say hi event in Dundee. So Discovery Vineyard Dundee will soon be born. And at the same time as that, uh, Tom and Rachel Kettle have recently moved to Orkney and they'll be planting a church in Orkney and they uh, have just had a baby as well. And so it's all happening for them too. So Jesus is building his church and there's never been a more important time to play, to play, to pray. So please, please do that. Okay. So uh, I became a Christian when I was 15. And when I became a Christian, I very quickly became a danger to myself when it came to my wardrobe because I discovered that in the Christian bookshop, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a Christian bookshop, but it turns out there was a Christian bookshop near me and in it there was a rail of Christian, let's call it leisure wear, t-shirts, and I just I just bought the whole lot. Uh, and so uh, it was, I mean, it, it was embarrassing to be seen with me. I had a t-shirt, it looked from a distance like it said, heavy metal, but when you got closer up, it said heavenly metal, you see. There was another one, it said on the front, um, it said worship the best, but once it had been through the wash a couple of times, it looked more like it said worship the beast, which was entirely the opposite of what I was wanting to communicate. But there was one t-shirt, and on the front of it, some of you will have had this t-shirt too, uh, it had just loads of fish swimming one way, and then one fish swimming the other way. And it said at the bottom, do not conform. And then on the back of it was a, a scripture reference. And it was like, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the truth is that there are loads and loads of those T-shirts, which I, I don't care if I ever see again. But there was something about that message for a 15-year-old kid living in a confusing and coercive world do not conform, be transformed, that had a real power in my life. And I think there's never been a time, in a sense, in our lifetimes where it was more important that we, we took that on. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, be transformed. You know, we're living in this world where there's crisis upon crisis. There's a, um, a global health crisis, which we all know about. There's a global economic crisis, a global cost of living crisis, a global energy crisis, 
there's a global mental health crisis, a global drugs crisis, an environmental crisis, all of these different crises piling in on top of each other. And the world does not need a church that looks exactly the same as everyone else. What the world needs in this moment is a church that embraces its call to look entirely different from everyone else, to, to live and think and believe and, and behave entirely differently to everyone else. You know, the Apostle Peter talks about us as being like aliens and strangers in the world. This is a moment to embrace our call to be aliens, although not perhaps, you know, the outer space ones, but just people who look different. Or, or the Apostle uh, Paul talks about how, how we're to be like uh, stars shining in the night sky. Now's the time to shine. And so as well as journeying through the book of Acts over the next uh, while, we've been doing that since last summer, we just felt in this moment, let's every now and then do a little series that we dip in and out of called Do Different, which is really about saying, what does it look like practically for us to behave and think differently? And so we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be different in the workplace? What does it mean to, to live differently when it comes to the environment or social media? Uh, and today we're looking at what does it mean to, to, to live differently with our money? Now you might say, oh great, yeah brilliant. Why, why start with money? Uh, to which I say, well, because nobody ever talks about money. That's the reality. You know, you could get a group of guys together or a group of girls together and they could be in their groups just, just speaking away and you could listen in. Obviously, I wouldn't, I mean, that's intrusion, isn't it? But, but you know, uh, listen into their conversation and you'll hear them talking about all, I mean, all sorts of things, especially, no, no, I'm not going to be sexist, but, uh, you know, like people, people speak about their, their uh, gym habits, their health habits, what they eat, their diets, their, you know, you'll hear them speak about the rash that they found under their armpit, you'll speak about their bowel movements, you might even he hear them speak about their sex lives, but you'll be sitting there a really long time with your uh, glass to the ear, of, you know, to, to, to your ear into the door before you hear them speak about what they earn or, or uh, what they owe or what they give away. It's the great taboo of our age. And yet Jesus didn't approach money in that way at all. In fact, the, the opposite is true. On nearly every page of the Gospels, he speaks about money or our resources or, or our, uh, you know, how we're stewarding what we have. And that's true throughout most of the scriptures. You know, the scriptures is not afraid of, of speaking about money. And, and so it just feels like, why would we not start there? Let's, let's start there. Now, uh, we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 1. So you can get that open in your Bible or swipe or tap to it. But let me just say this. You know, the, an early draft of this talk uh, went a bit like this. It went, and now, you know, we should be giving all of our money away. And here's the sort code and the bank account number of our church. It was kind of like the grand finale, building up to the sort code and the bank account number. And um, I was like, you know what, let's not do that. Uh, I don't want to finish there. I don't want that to be the, the kind of the grand finale. And so I'll just say right now, just to our church family, I recognize that there are people visiting from outside and so on. But uh, just to say for our church family, um, just to be really real for a moment, the, the income of our church, for all kinds of understandable reasons related to COVID and furlough and redundancy and so on, uh, the income of our church has dropped nearly every month 
for two years. And that's a problem. Uh, and so I, I would just say there's, there's, there's never, it, it, if ever there was a time for us as the church family, the people of God, to just pray, look at our resources, look at what we're giving to the church, and just ask the Lord, is this the right number? Uh, this would be a really good time to do that. And so please, can we all do that? Uh, you know, um, there, as I said earlier on, there are lots of exciting things happening, but nothing's free in this world, and so it all costs money. Uh, and so we're just grateful that you would do that. Okay, so Philippians chapter 1. Let me just give you a bit of background. This is a thank you letter. Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians is a thank you letter. Uh, he, he visited Philippi on his second missionary journey. He led some people to the Lord. He formed them into a kind of a fledgling church community. And um, then having been with them for some time, he moved on and he went somewhere else. And from the moment that they came to faith and the moment they formed into a church, they started to support him financially. And so they would send gifts to him and that enabled him to continue on his journey, planting churches, leading people to Jesus. And they were his partners in that. And then uh, he's writing now from prison and uh, uh, um, this is, it's obviously a tough time for him. If, if someone doesn't support him financially, then he doesn't eat in prison. That's how it works in those days. And uh, Epaphroditus appears from Philippi with a gift, I guess a hamper of goodies and, and finances and so on. And, he, and he's just so thrilled that they've remembered him even in prison. And, he, and so he writes this. So Philippians chapter 1, he's there with Timothy. And he says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's our text for today. Lots of people in our church uh, uh, and joining us today are new to church, and that's great. We love that. Some people in our church have been around church a really long time. And so there's a particular word that may be familiar to you, and that's the word tithing. Tithing uh, literally means a tenth, and uh, it comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Moses heard from God. He got this law that, that was like God saying, this is how I want my people to live. And God commanded the Israelites. He said, I want you to give a tenth, a tithe of everything that you have to, uh, to me. And so you know, a tenth of the crops, a tenth of the livestock, a tenth of the income of the household, the first tenth would 
uh, they, they'd save it up, and then whenever they visited the temple, they would take it with them, and they would give it to the Levites, to the priests in the temple, and say, this is, this is for God, essentially. Um, and that was, that was what tithing was. Now, the truth is, I'd love to be able to teach, hey, church, we want you to tithe. The Bible says tithe. The Bible says Old Testament law, tithing applies today. Please, will you do that? I'd love to be able to do that. The reason I'd love to be able to do that is because everyone in, if everyone in our church gave a tenth of their income, then we would have many multiples of our income uh, that we do right now. We'd have millions and millions of pounds in the bank. The reason I can't personally, just as a leader in our church, stand up and say, I want you to tithe, is because I don't see it in the, in the New Testament. I'd love to be able to see it, but I don't. I don't see them saying, well, we used to, we're Jews, we've, we've, you know, we've become Christians, we used to take the first tenth to the temple and give it to the Levites, and now we're going to take that same tenth and give it to Peter, James, and John in their house or wherever it is that we're meeting. I don't think that their generosity is an obedience to an Old Testament law. I don't think that what we're doing right now in the undisclosed location uh, or in Peterhead or Ellen or anywhere else, I don't think that's a temple. And I don't think that me and Taryn or any of the other leaders in our church are Levitical priests. And so I don't see them making that logical jump. And yet what I see is actually they're probably giving not 10%, but way more than 10% to Peter, James, and John. You know, we've seen that as we followed through the book of Acts. That we're seeing them giving extraordinarily generously uh, of what they have. And so the question that I want to look at today is why? If they're not giving in obedience to Old Testament law, if they're giving for some other reason, then what is that reason? And um, uh, to me, the, the answer is one Greek word. And it's the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia means literally kind of partnership. It means, it means, uh, it was a kind of a secular Greek word. It, it meant business partnership. You can see that in Luke chapter 5. There's a moment where Jesus is about to call his disciples. He gets into Simon's boat. Simon, his brother, Andrew, they own this fishing boat. He gets in, they have this miraculous catch of fish. The nets start to burst. And as a result, it says, in Luke chapter 5, verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Uh, and so um, he's, they're signaling to James and John, uh, who it turns out are in a kind of a business partnership together. I guess they own their boats collectively and they're equally responsible for making sure that their business works. They have a business partnership. That's what that word means. That's koinonia, it's partnership. But in the New Testament, Koinonia means way more than that. Uh, you know, in, in a sense, they redefine the meaning of the word partnership. It, it, it's about mutuality and love and commitment and compassion, and, and it has a, tender, uh, a tenderness to it. And so, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the very beginning of the church, it says, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to Fellowship. It's the same word, koinonia. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to partnership together, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Can you hear it? There's definitely a business partnership in the sense of they're collaborating together with their resources, but there's also a tenderness and a commitment and a sense of family. You see it as well in Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared, again, koinonia, they partnered together with everything that they had. Not 10%. They they partnered together with everything that they had. There were no needy people among them. Of course there were. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And so there's this profound sense of mutuality and love and commitment to the family business. What's the family business? It's feeding the poor. What's the family business? It's communicating the good news of Jesus to everyone they possibly could. And they did that together. Like I said, that word is everywhere. So Romans chapter 15, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, 15 verse 25. He says, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem uh, in the service of the Lord's people there. For the churches in Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor. And that word contribution is koinonia. They were pleased to partner together for the poor. Same in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 3. For I testify, says Paul, that the Macedonian churches gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of partnering together in the service of the Lord's people. People didn't live, it seems to me, they didn't live simply and give generously because some Old Testament law was like prizing the money out of their hands. They gave generously because they were deeply committed to the work of God and to making sure that no one went without and and so on. And so how is it that Paul's able to travel from city to city, leading people to Jesus and planting churches and leaving behind him this glorious trail of of new churches and, and new believers? He's able to do that because the Philippians have been supporting him Uh, and partnering together with him. And we see that in our passage today. It's taken me a long way to get to our passage today, but verse 4, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership. There it is. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. So what do we learn about partnership from this passage? Well, firstly, we learn that partnership is for everyone. I think it's supposed to be uh, uh, the first century idea of a, of a joke. Uh, I'll grant you it's not very funny, but, but this is the Apostle Paul. He's saying, you know, to all the holy people in Philippi and the leaders, you know, and, uh, and the overseers and deacons. I know it's not very funny, but it is basically a joke. And, and um, uh, uh, it, you can actually track the alls to all God's holy people. You can track the alls all the way through this text. So to all God's holy people, verse 1. Verse 4, in all my prayers for all of you. Verse 7, it's right that I feel this way about all of you. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you. 
And, and in the original Greek, it's even more pronounced and even more poetic. He's writing to the whole community, and he knows that they've all been involved together, partnering together with whatever they, whatever they could bring. Uh, and um, it's one of the, the saddest lies that we can believe on this whole topic is, well, my little contribution, not really needed. You know, they can do without my little contribution. It won't make any difference. And, and I think as we've grown as a church, the truth is, that when there were fewer of us, it felt like, oh my goodness, we're all going to have to kind of contribute here to make this thing happen. But as the income of the church has grown to hundreds of thousands of pounds, it feels a bit like, well, will my contribution make any difference? Now, the truth is that, that neither Taryn or I or any other leaders in the church, we don't know how much people give, and we don't know who, people, who gives. We, it's anonymous to us, and so we don't know. Um, but what we're told by our accountant is, that there are no secret millionaires in the church. We only get hundreds of thousands of pounds in our church because hundreds and hundreds of people contribute their, their little bit. Um, now, just to do a little bit of maths here, you know, uh, maybe you're the kind of person, you work in an office in town, but you live outside, you drive past the, the Starbucks or the Costa drive-through on your way into work, and... Um, every morning, Monday to Friday, you just stop at Starbucks and you, you spend three quid. It's only three quid. Uh, just get a little latte or something like that on the way in. Now, let's just say, just for the sake of argument, a couple of days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, you say, I'm not going to buy my latte. I'm going to take that three quid. I'm going to put it in my piggy bank. And once a month, I'm going to bring that money to church. If you were to do that, six pounds a week, that's 312 pounds in a year plus gift day, 390 pounds that you could have brought to the ministry of our church. Now, you might say, well, what's 390 pounds going to achieve? Well, I'll tell you. You know, that would pay to all the costs required to run an alpha course in your site for a whole year. So you've given maybe 10, 20, 50, 100 people the opportunity to hear about Jesus and to, to figure out for themselves what does following Jesus mean. You have personally paid for them to have that opportunity. Or maybe you've paid for the insurance for the pantry van, the storehouse van that goes around this whole region deli delivering literally hundreds of thousands of meals in a year, and you've paid for that. Or maybe in, somebody in your site is bereaved uh, and they've lost a loved one suddenly and they're just, they're, they're just in shock and grief. Uh, and their site pastor is able to sit with them and grieve with them, weep with them, in the run-up to the funeral, they're planning that together, and then perhaps they're leading the, the funeral and, and preaching and so on. And then afterwards, when, when everyone else has dissipated, the site pastor is still meeting with them and praying with them, and you've paid for the whole thing. If you can achieve that with just, oh, I might not have a coffee a couple of times a week, imagine if hundreds and hundreds of us together said, I'm going to deliberately and intentionally give. I'm going to give as much as I can. And we're going to pull our resources together. It's astonishing what we could achieve together. Partnership is for everyone. Secondly, partnership is forward thinking. It's forward thinking. I'm basically the king of procrastination. I don't know whether I come across like that, but I promise you, if anything can be done tomorrow uh, instead of today, then that's the way I prefer it. Um, and uh, the funny thing is that I've married... Taryn, who, who is the precise opposite of that. She's never put off anything till tomorrow in her whole life. 
and so it works really, really well. But when I was at school, my uh, parents were, were really worried about my approaching exams, uh, and I wasn't doing anything. You know, I was rearranging my CD collection. I was, uh, you know, coloring in my revision timetable, uh, you know, but I just never got around to doing any work. And so they wrote to the headmaster, and they said, listen, uh, he's not doing anything at home. I don't know if you can imagine how mortifying it was to be sat in French one day and getting, you know, oh, uh, could he come to the headmaster's office? And I had to go to the headmaster's office, and the headmaster said, your parents have written to me. Oh, I was just like, I'm sorry, what? And, and so anyway, so, so uh, he said, what are you thinking? You've got these exams coming up. You need to crack on. Let's, you know, let's start doing some work. And I was like, quick as a flash, I said, well, you always tell us we should think ahead. I'm just thinking ahead till tomorrow and planning to do it tomorrow. He said, yeah, the problem is you're not thinking far enough ahead. You're not thinking to the day when you're sat in the exam and you've got literally nothing between your ears. You're not thinking far enough ahead. And the truth is that when it comes to generosity and giving and so on, so many of us live our lives like that. You know, we're just thinking, well, tomorrow I'll get this nailed down. You know, like at the moment, got a few financial things going on or, you know, tomorrow I'll, or next year I'll start giving properly or, or um, well, at the moment, I'm, you know, I'm just a student or, or, or um, I'm just saving up from, for, for a deposit for a house at the moment or whatever it is. It's like tomorrow we'll get this nailed down. Uh, and yet the Apostle Paul teaches us something here because he's always got his eye on the future, but it's not tomorrow. He's got his eye on the day he meets Jesus. You see that in verse 6. It's, he talks about the day of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 9, I'm praying that you'll be able to discern what's best for the day of Christ Jesus. We need to start thinking ahead, but really ahead. Jesus is really, really concerned with what we do with our finances. You know, again, a little bit of maths. Uh, I know how you love that. Uh, but uh, let's just say that, that a, you know, a young adult has a gap year, a couple of gap years. Let's say they start doing a proper, you know, like they're settling into their, their career in some kind of job, age 25. And then let's just say, for the sake of argument, they work till they're 65, which is, again, you know, conservative, probably more like 95 by the time any of us get to retire. But 40 years, that's why I'm doing it, round number, 40 years working life. And then let's say, you know, the average income in Scotland is £31,000. I don't know whether that sounds like a lot or a little to you, but let's just say round down £25,000, just for the sake of argument. So 40 years earning on average £25,000. Guess what? The Lord has entrusted to you in your lifetime a million pounds. A million pounds. And one day we'll meet Jesus and he'll say, I gave you a million pounds. A million pounds came through your fingers. What did you do with it? And obviously, some of the answer to that will be, well, I wore clothes. You know, I had to buy clothes. Please don't ever come to church without clothes. That would be inappropriate. You know, I put a roof over my head. I had to eat. But a whole bunch of the money that he's put into our hands is not for us. And one day we'll have to give an account for that. What a beautiful thing to be able to say to Jesus, Jesus, I invested it for you. I gave it away to serve the poor. The critical question was in so many areas of life, what will I be glad? When I meet Jesus face to face, what will I be glad that I was doing right now? Let's be forward thinking in our 
partnership. And the last thing, and I'll just finish with this very briefly, is partnership is a fountain of joy. I have in my mind that those kind of fountains that you find in uh, town squares in uh, parts of Italy or France or wherever, where the water just cascades down from uh, layer to layer. It's so ironic, isn't it, that this epistle is called the Epistle of Joy, Philippians, because it's written, if you think about it, from prison. So why is it called the Epistle of Joy when Paul's in prison? Well, because he uses the word joy 16 times in four short chapters. Why does he do that? Well, actually, we can discover what the source of his joy is in this letter. In verse 4, he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Actually, he's been sat there in prison. Epaphroditus has come along with this gift that's keeping him alive and helping him to continue in his ministry. And he's just overwhelmed with joy. And you might say, well, of course he's overwhelmed with joy. <laughs> you know, he's just he's got a load of money just arrived. Um, but obviously the Philippians... They're going without. They've had to sacrifice. To be, so they're, they're probably not experiencing joy. Well, actually, nothing could be further from the truth. We discover in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, he, Paul talks about the people who are living in the area around Philippi, the, the region of Macedonia. He, he's like, those people are giving beyond their ability to give. And yet he describes them as being people of overflowing joy. So, so here's the thing. You know, their overflowing joy uh, means that, that they're able to give to Paul. Uh, his over, you know, he's overwhelmed with joy, which means he's able to communicate the gospel to people who then get, have the opportunity to meet Jesus and surrender to their lives to Jesus and experience the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. It's a fountain of joy. It's the precise opposite of what the world says. The world says, you know, uh, I'm feeling a bit low, feeling a bit depressed. I'm going to go to Union Square. I'm going to go and hammer my bank account. I'm going to hammer my credit cards. I'm going to purchase a whole lot of things. And then I'm going to experience joy. And Paul says, no, no, no. No, joy doesn't come from purchasing things. Joy comes from partnership. We experience joy when we know that our money is having a profound impact and an effect in uh, our locality and all around the world. And so I just want to say this. What a vision. What a vision for money and finances that, go, that is way beyond, like, I'm just going to spend money on myself. You know, that's why God is calling us to think and behave and do differently when it comes to our money, because our money can achieve so much more uh, all around the world and lift our own sense of well-being. Let's pray. Father, we just recognize that the world is in crisis. And so we say to you, Jesus, that we want to make a stand. We want to live and behave and think differently. We want to live up to the call to be aliens and strangers in the world because we know that that's what the world needs right now. And so we pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with courage. And lead us, guide us in the way that you'd have us walk. And Jesus, when it comes to our finances, we just bring them all before you. We bring to you our debt, 
as well as our resources. And we say, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen.